Hello everybody, I'm Dwayne Mancini and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our web- website. MedTech Money is an interview-style podcast focused on demystifying, raising, and investing capital for MedTech startups. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Galen Data. Galen Data is the cloud for medical device makers. The Galen Cloud provides a configurable platform for device to cloud connectivity that is compliant to FDA, HIPAA, and CE mark standards. Built on 40 plus years of collective experience developing compliance systems in the medical device industry, the company's goal is to make medical device cloud connectivity available to all at a fraction of the cost while shaving months off the development timeline. In this episode, our guest Mary Yost and I discuss why she founded the Sage Group, her background and why she got into this role, peripheral arterial disease or PAD, the financial cost of the healthcare system, why it is undiagnosed and undertreated, who is most affected by the disease, current treatments and diagnostic tools, new device and diagnostics on the horizon, what is next to spread awareness about the issue, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Mary Yost. like that we're live mary welcome to the podcast thank you it's a pleasure to be here yeah so before we get started do you just want to give the listeners a a little background of who you are what you do and and, in your company okay yeah the the sage group we started the sage group 20 years ago now and at that time um the focus was on peripheral artery disease which was an ignored cardiovascular disease. I like to call it an orphan cardiovascular disease because it was ignored, but it's highly prevalent. And um, in the ensuing time, what we've done is we've become experts in a number of areas, including epidemiology, that is how big is the problem? What are the aspects? What are the comorbidities? Economics and costs, which is one of the areas I sort of pioneered and then amputation, which is a very depressing topic. Um, but fortunately or unfortunately, I've become uh, involved with that, particularly trying to prevent unnecessary amputations from going on. In, in terms of our um, uh, revenue stream, basically we do consulting and we also sell research reports that are on topics that I think or the clients think are interesting. Obviously, if the clients didn't think they were interesting, they wouldn't buy them. So we, we try and get that client right. interest in there. Yeah, so, so who generally are your clients then? Are there people who are trying to treat this space? Are they physicians? What does that kind of look like? Yeah, most of our clients are industry. Well, yeah, there are a few doctors, um, but primarily industry and primarily med tech companies, device companies. We have had a few pharmaceutical companies, but Big Pharma has pretty much ignored this disease, so they aren't interested. Um, And we've we've had a number of stem cell companies back, it's probably about 10 years ago or so now, when um, that was a hot area for um, various cardiovascular, solving cardiovascular problems. We've also had a few other consultants as clients, but primarily MedTech. Okay. So... You started this 20 years ago. What did you do before that that leads you into, you know, being on the forefront of maybe some of these papers and research and compiling that data? You know, what kind of background do you have? Well, it's sort of a funny story. Um, why, how, first of all, my background originally, um, I wanted to be a professor. I was an academic type. I still am to a lot of, to many, many extents. I was going to get a degree in economics. Anyway, I ended up going and getting an MBA in finance um, because I wanted to make some money. And back in those days, you could make a huge amount of money, $12,000. This is many years ago. Uh, If you applied it to today's dollars, that's a lot of money, though. Um, But 
I ended up in in the investment business first on the buy side for um, in various in bank institutions, bank related investment institutions, and then on the sell side. Okay, so the relationship with this disease and what I do is really the the, the part where I focused on device companies as an analyst and also other healthcare companies. Um, and that background provided me with the, um, the ability to think about, you know, well, how big is the problem? How much does it cost? What is the market opportunity? And I'm really, you know, I'm really big on this whole cost thing because taxpayers pay the bill for this disease. That's we'll, we'll get into that later, I'm sure. But so it's sort of a PAD itself. Yeah. Um, that was an accident, a uh, happy accident. At, at that time, I was um, between activities working for other people. And I was invested in a company called No Boast that did brachytherapy, which is a, a it used to be a therapy for restenosis. And they talked about um, how there was this huge opportunity in the SFA. Well, I'd never heard of that. I mean, I'd, I'd done, I'd done, I'd followed the device companies that were doing all these devices for cardiovascular disease, but I've never heard of this leg disease. And that sort of got the ball rolling in terms of this topic. Okay. Very interesting. So, so what, um, I, I guess now let's kind of jump into, uh, PAD or peripheral artery disease. What is it? Arterial yeah. disease, correct? Um, it's artery. They keep changing the terms. Okay. Okay. Here's <laughs> so, about uh, was arterial disease, not artery. Okay. All right. Very good. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. I come from the the CRO world. That's like our that's our thing is acronyms and change them. Um, so yeah, so, yeah. Let's uh, let's kind of dive into that. So so what is the real big issue with this? What is the disease? You know, I know we've mentioned before. It's it's underestimated, underdiagnosed, undertreated. So maybe just give the listeners who maybe aren't intimately familiar with this why this is a problem and and kind of i guess the lay of the land yeah okay um well for, first of all pad is atherosclerosis in the arteries of the lower limbs basically it's a similar disease process to coronary disease or carotid disease um, if you have plaque building up in your coronary arteries you have a heart attack if you have plaque building up in your carotid arteries you have a stroke if you have plaque building up and occluding the blood flow in your legs, then you can have pain and ultimately in the most severe stages of the disease, critical limb ischemia, you can end up with rest pain, ulcers, and gangrene. Um, and amputation is frequently the therapy for critical limb ischemia, although it shouldn't be. But um, in terms of the size of the disease, we estimated 2020, over 21 million people had PAD. Now that's more than coronary artery disease, all cancers put together, stroke. The only more prevalent chronic disease is diabetes, which is 34 to 37 million. And there's a close connection here with diabetes. Um, the presence of diabetes makes the disease worse. It's more severe um, and increases the, increases the risk of amputation and also increases the cause. Now, the other aspect of why this disease is so important, you, you mentioned it's undertreated and it's underdiagnosed. So what we have is this huge disease, oh, and by the way, it's, it's super fatal. Um, they don't die of leg disease, they die of heart attacks. So you have this huge disease that's not being diagnosed until the very severe stages. And that means it's, it costs more. If you can, I mean, it's like cancer. If you can diagnose it when it's a tiny little lump and you can take it out with surgery and you don't have to do anything else to the patient, 
then um, it's a lot less costly than if, if, if it's stage four cancer that has to, they have to have surgery, then they have radiation therapy and chemotherapy and this, that, and the other thing done to them. Similarly, it's like with any disease. Um, so what we have is this highly prevalent disease that's ignored. And, and also the public doesn't know about this disease. Another aspect is that the public is more familiar with ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease. There's only 30,000 people that have it. They're more familiar with HIV. There's a million plus people, but nobody's ever heard of PAD. And so the patients can't, I mean, they go to their doctor and they're sort of like helpless because they don't know anything about the disease. And, and then they get to the doctor and depending on what doctor, where, they either get good treatment or not so good treatment. Yeah, this is super interesting. I mean, because I, I think candidly, right, I, I wasn't aware of, I, I knew of the issue because I know Tim Blair, right? Right, right. that's probably the only reason. Right, it, it is. <laughs> because he's in the space. Right, 100%, right? And so, uh, you know, when I had said, hey, let's kind of chat about this, like, some of this information, the one thing, you know, as I'm scrolling through was you mentioned the cost uh, of 283 to $539 Is that globally or? No, that's just the U.S. Oh, and and I might add the taxpayers are paying this bill. Yeah. And, and I mean, now those are, those are my estimates based. Well, we, we didn't go into how I made the estimates, but, but um, that actually, those figures are higher than for diabetes, coronary disease, and all cancers put together, all cancers put together in the U.S. cost about $80 billion. Yeah. But everybody's heard of cancer. And every time, and, and it's funny, every time you turn around, you hear a conversation and somebody's talking about, oh, well, my mother, my father, you know, my husband, whatever, has cancer. But you mm -hmm. never hear that conversation. Oh, well, my mother, my father, my cousin, whatever, has PAD. Mm -hmm. it, it's really interesting to me. And, and one, well, the cancer has much better PR. I mean, and I'm not knocking cancer. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's good. But... There's, there's been no PR on this disease. And there's been the last time there was any consumer advertising was when Plavix, which is an antiplatelet drug, so you don't have blood clots, okay? Um, Plavix was on patent. And Bristol-Myers and Sanofi used to advertise on television. But that was like 20 years ago. Maybe right. not that long, but almost 20 years ago. And so, yeah. you know, you scroll through magazines and you see all these weird diseases that some of them I've never even heard of. And, and you know, with, with the, the advertising for whatever it is that the drug treatment is, but you never, you don't see that for PAD. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I this is, this is crazy. Um, so, so let's talk about, um, does it affect, you know, men more than women, women more than men? How does race play into this? You know, can we break down some of those? So you kind of laid the land of why this is a problem, um, what PAD is, right? Um, why we need to be concerned with it. Well, who's it affect though? Who's the most at risk? Well, there's some, there's some interesting demographics. First of all, it's a disease of aging. So, and, and age is a very strong risk factor. Family history is also a strong risk factor. So if your parents or your aunt or uncle or your brother had it, you were likely to get it. And then diabetes, of course, is a very strong risk factor. So is smoking. Um, okay. Those are just some of the risk factors, okay? Um, if you look at the demographics in terms of male versus female, Actually, more than half, over half of the PAD population is female. Hmm, Yet, okay. 20 years ago, I would read articles that said 
women don't get PAD. And, and occasionally you still see that in the literature. Um, and that, that basically that has to do with, sorry, I'm throwing around these terms, but um, intermittent claudication is one of the symptoms. And basically that's pain that occurs when you're walking and your you know, buttocks or thighs, calves, um, that goes away when you stop walking and then it recurs. Well, only a small portion of the PAD population has intermittent claudication and women don't have it. So they used to define PAD as IC, intermittent claudication, so, and, and women didn't have it. So it's like, okay, women don't have this disease. Hmm. But that was incorrect. Well, that's, that's, that's been corrected. Okay, the other thing about women is they tend to present later, i.e. they present with CLI, critical limb ischemia. Um, and that's because they have higher uh, asymptomatic atypical disease um, and uh, also because they're not revascularized or treated, they're treated at late stages. And then being a woman increases your risk for amputation. We're talking major amputation, i.e. above the knee or below the knee. Another very important group is African-Americans. And there's huge differences here. The African-American population accounts for about 12% of the US population, ages 45 and older, that, that's the population we look at for PAD. But they account for 24% of the PAD population and 30% of the CLI population. So this particular group wow. is differentially affected by this disease. And there's a whole laundry list of reasons, um, which I just wrote a huge report on. Um, but two key points, they, they also, African-Americans also are not diagnosed and treated till the later stages. They tend to present with CLI, critical limb ischemia, i.e. rest pain ulcers and gangrene. They have a much higher risk for amputation, one times to four times the risk. And most importantly, African-American women are at the highest risk with, a, with an odds of almost eight times versus other women. Um, and higher odds than, than African-American men. Now, there are some other groups, um, i.e. American Indians, um, I guess Native Americans is probably the more appropriate term, and Hispanics also tend to be more prone to amputation. Um, okay. So that gives you an overview of, you know, some some of the, demographics. Okay. So how, how do they, uh, I want to know currently, right? Diagnose and treat the disease. So what's the diagnosis process like? And then, and then how do they currently treat it? And then after we get through that, I want to know, you know, like what's, what's next. What are, are we, the opportunities? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The current, um, if you're doing, a, a, type, a screening type diagnosis, you would use the ABI, which is ankle brachial index. And basically that's like a blood pressure test with blood pressure cuffs on your arms and your ankles. And um, then there are other types of diagnostics such as um, ultrasound, duplex ultrasound. And then prior to revascularization, um, Angiogram uh, is the, the gold standard for um, diagnosing and, and finding exactly where the disease is. Now, you can also use uh, CT, MRA, and some, you know, some institutions use those, but the, the, the big one is, is angiogram. Um, then in terms of the treatments, um, let's, let's talk about well, let's talk about in order of severity. Um, PAD is considered a risk factor equivalent for coronary disease. So all of these patients, and I mentioned that they die of heart disease, they don't die of leg disease, but it's all the same process. Um, so because of that, they need the risk factors treated. So there's medical therapy. So they need, you know, 
any they need um any lipids any any platelets or any thrombotics uh smoking cessation they need their glucose controlled because elevated glucose is a huge risk factor for severe disease glucose being part of diabetes elevated glucose etc okay um then there's supervised exercise therapy that's not been widely used because it wasn't adequately reimbursed that's changed recently and then sort of the most invasive or the next for the more severe disease you have either revascularization or amputation and revascularization can either be a bypass a peripheral bypass um, which is a invasive surgical procedure or endovascular and there's a whole host of endovascular products starting with pta um, balloon angioplasty which goes back to the 1970s by the way um, you have stents you have drug coated stents you have um drug coated balloons that's the newest thing etc um so th those are the current treatments um and well then okay then you have the dreaded amputation and one of the problems in driving up the cost is that amputations are performed when they don't necessarily need to be performed that's sort of a controversial statement on my part um basically amputations are performed without a huge percentage of them are done without any diagnostic test the doctor just looks at the problem and, and doesn't do a test and says the leg has to come off um and they're also performed without any revascularization. And if, for example, if you have an angiogram, that reduces the odds of an amputation by 90%, which is a staggering number. Um, and if you have a revascularization, it also reduces the odds of going on to an amputation. Sorry, I've just, I've just been doing a lot of work on amputations. It's like in the forefront of my mind, yeah. Um, well, it's a big problem though. You're talking about the loss of a limb. Well, it's also a death sentence and it is also a racial issue and a gender issue. And, and the mortality rate from amputation is higher than almost any cancer, except for maybe lung cancer. I mean, we're looking at these, these people are dead in a couple of years. Yeah. If they survive the procedure in the hospital, and, and one of the problems is these are very sick patients. They're also old patients. These are not young, healthy soldiers. Mm -hmm. These are patients that have diabetes, coronary disease, CHF. You know, some of them have cancer. They have all kinds of kidney disease. They're just it's this laundry list of problems that they have. And, um, the one of the issues with amputation is that there's besides the high mortality both in the in the hospital and then within a year one of the issues is that there's a huge rate of complications like a 30 percent rate of complica complications there's also a huge rate of re-amputations particularly if you have a quote quote minor amputation which is a toe or a part of a foot. I know this is getting into some nasty stuff. Um, uh, now, I mean, it's just, I, I spent a couple of years doing nothing but amputation. It was really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, so what about, where, where, I mean, where do we go from here? Right. Um, uh, and, and before we cover awareness, which seems like the most blatant place to start. Yeah, let's let's start with because we're it's fresh in, in in the listeners' minds and my mind as well. You know, how do we make? I think and and, and take COVID for an example, right? Um, a lot of the press that was covered with COVID was the vaccines or the drug treatments, but 
the warning signs, the the, di the diagnostic tools um, were crucial. Your early warning system um, is incredibly important for disease because any disease is <clears throat> is easily more easily treated the earlier you find it, right? So, so right. what updates need to be made to the way, if any, if there maybe there isn't one, but is there better ways to diagnose this disease earlier? Is there anything on the way, or is that just something that people need to maybe focus on? Well, be, besides more awareness, and it's not just the patients that aren't aware or the pop, you know the, the population, it's also the primary care physician. I mean, when was the last time your PCP looked at your feet and legs? Probably never. Right. Um, they, they just don't know about this disease. And, yeah. and I'm not picking on them, but, you know, they have like 10 minutes or five minutes or whatever with the patient. And, and they have a whole laundry list of things to cover. But um, in terms of diagnostics, there's, there's several huge opportunities. One is a test, a screening test. And we can get into the screening discussion later if you want. A screening test that is cheaper than the ABI, although the cost of the ABI is not such a big issue and more accurate than the ABI, because the ABI has limitations in people who with diabetes or who have um, hard calcified arteries, and diabetics do, CK, uh, chronic kidney disease patients do, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so something that's more accurate. You also need better tests. Uh, we don't really have... Another huge opportunity is in the cath lab where they treat these patients, they don't have a test to tell if, if they're done with the procedure, if, if, if the blood flow is adequate down to the foot to heal the, the diabetic foot wounds or whatever. Um, there are several companies that are working on these quote, quote, real-time perfusion tests. And, um, you know, they have to be you know, not, not cheap, but they have to be cost effective. Um, they can't be really expensive. They have to be easy to use, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's a company called Pedrocheck. There's also, they're out of Singapore. There's a company called Kent Imaging. Um, I think there's a couple others. There's one called Flowcheck that um, Medtronic bought. So there's a number of companies working on this, this concept. And this is something that really excites the interventional guys to be able to, to, to be able to put something on the foot or the leg and say, wow, we've, we've got the perfusion. We can stop intervening. There's adequate blood flow. Because if you don't have adequate blood flow, then the wounds will not heal. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay, so that's on the diabetics, I mean, the diagnostic side. On the, re, on the other side, there's two needs. One, we need some better tech technologies for revascularization. And two, in my opinion, we need, um, there's a real need for uh, pharmaceutical therapy that would actually do something that actually treat the underlying atherosclerotic process. Now we've got we've got you know we've got antiplatelets, and but they only treat the blood clot side. Um, we've got um, uh, Zeralto, which treats blood clots in a different manner, and also has um, Zeralto as a Janssen drug, and they're part of J and J. Um, uh, so we've got those, but there's nothing that really attacks that underlying process of what gets what what causes the plaque to grow and, and occlude the artery. Now there's okay. there's some really early research that I ran across. I was doing some genetic stuff, and and there's some intriguing ideas if you look at genetic factors that there's some some therapeutic targets that potentially could be attacked. I, I don't know if, if anybody commercially is doing that kind of research, but it's certainly, and it would certainly be very expensive research, um, but that would be something that would be really exciting. On the revascularization side, 
We've got surgical bypass. That's been around for a long time. That it has a huge rate of complications. It's a really sort of nasty procedure. Um, and it's also got higher mortality than endovascular. Now we've got, there was a company called PQ Bypass, which was acquired by somebody or other within the last couple of years. I can't remember exactly who. Um, they had, they developed a less invasive, sort of like a combination of an endovascular bypass, if you will, where you, they could just make two little incisions in the leg and, and put in a stent graft. So that, I mean, that's really exciting because also these people, because they're so sick, often don't have um, autologous vein graft available. Now there is a company working on um, vein grafts. I'm blanking out on their name. They're in North Carolina. That would be really exciting um, to come up and that, that could also be used in coronary procedures and other, other things. Um, but then looking at the endovascular side, if you look at endovascular and you think about it, we've got all this fancy stuff now, drug-coated balloons and drug-coated stats, blah, blah, blah. But if you think about it, it's all based on the original technology from the 1970s. Um, that idea of going in and putting in a balloon and mashing the plaque up against the artery to open up the artery. And then, and then doing other, you know, the stent then keeps the artery propped open. Then you add drugs. That helps keep, that reduces restenosis, yada, yada, yada. Um, so there is one um, new technology in this area. Of the company is Limflow. And they have a product for, to, to um, uh, treat advanced disease, um, very advanced critical limb ischemia, <clears throat> where they, uh, they have a kit that allows, uh, allows the doctor to bypass the blockage in the artery by using the veins um, deep down in the tibial area and, and then routing the blood to the foot again to heal wounds in, in the very sick patients. Now that, I mean, that's a whole pretty far out idea. And, and surgeons were doing that before, but these guys developed, you know, a, a device that does it. So, so there's more standardized um, procedure, procedure uh, opportunities. Um, so that, you know, that's something. In terms of the needs, we have, um, restenosis is still a problem. We have drug-coated balloons, but even, you know, the restenosis rate there is still around 14%. And the problem is you're using a lot of, um, you're using multiple devices. Uh, when, you know, before you, you before you use the drug-coated balloon, um, then they, they do a PTA, with a balloon catheter, they might do some atherectomy, they might do some other stuff. So pretty soon you've got four or five devices in there that they're using, and of course that runs up the cost. So there are new drugs. Paclitaxel has been the drug that's been used for um, drug-coated balloons up to date, the ones that are on the market here in the US. Mm -hmm. There are some, there's Sirolimus and some other variants on the theme that are in, in the test process so that, you know, maybe they can bring down the rates of restenosis. Another somewhat related area would be below the knee disease. We don't have good, there, there's a real lack there. So an opportunity to treat lesions below the knee and also below the ankle. And again, below the ankle being the foot and I'll, you know, um, the, the patients, the really sort of the most severe critical limb ischemia patients that have few, if any, options for treatment tend to have foot disease. And sometimes it's called desert foot. Sometimes it's called renal foot. There's, there's different names for it. But basically, the the little, the smaller arteries in their feet are clogged up 
And again, if the arteries clogged up, the blood, you can open the arteries to the ankle, but if the foot arteries are clogged, you're not going to get that blood flow that you need. Sure. Um, real quick, can you, can you define restenosis? Just fill us oh, in. Okay. Really familiar. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I, I try to not be too technical. But, no, it's uh, yeah. okay. Basically, yeah. basically, restenosis is um, the plaque and blood clots coming back and uh, closing up the artery. Mm -hmm. okay. um, that's yeah. not a crude way to explain it. But, you yeah. know, basically you need the artery open to get the blood flow down there. Right. Okay. Um, so... So, so, so what about awareness, right? Because that seems to be, you know, uh, an issue as well, as you kind of highlighted at the beginning. Um, and a lot of times, uh, you know, it's the general public not being aware, it's researchers not being aware of the opportunity at hand, it's investors not being aware of the opportunity at hand, right? I mean, it's a lot of these things that ultimately drive drive innovation in this space, specifically in that diagnosis and treatment. So from an awareness side of things, it's kind of like, you know, I mean, th that number of what it costs, right, is incredible. I mean, it's, it, it's an incredibly high amount. And even if, even if you were off by 50%, it's still incredibly high, right? And so, yeah. um, I, I'm just curious on like, well, how do, how do we get people behind this and, and behind the problem and behind some solutions? Um, any thoughts there? Yeah, my single answer is always Oprah. Yeah, um, <laughs> right. Think about how many million or zillion or billion people watched Meghan and Harry when, when they were on Oprah's show or right. when she interviewed them. Okay, mm -hmm. if we could just get a fraction of that or think about, you know, all we've heard about for the last two years has been COVID. The news, right. I mean, I don't think, do you, when do you ever hear a story about PAD on the news media or mm -hmm. in the media? Right. Either print or, or radio or TV or whatever. Yeah. So, um, there, you know, one of the most successful awareness programs has been um, for breast cancer. You know, in October, you can't get away from the pink ribbons. Yeah. And, and you know, that's very important because then that has driven the awareness of this disease, the awareness of the importance of early diagnosis and treatment, et cetera, et cetera. And we screen for breast cancer. We right. don't screen for PAD. We should be. That's my opinion. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of um, the interventional doctors would agree with me that we need to screen for PAD. Now we're not going to screen every man, woman, and child. We're going to screen the high-risk populations. And if, if you just there was a famous study called the Partner Study. If if you if you just take the population in that study, which was diabetics over age 50, smokers over age 50, you know, different risk factors, um, you would get a yield of 29%. And, and, and yet the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force keeps coming out with these, um, these papers saying it could cause more harm than good. Go figure. So anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, okay. Not my so, favorite. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, no. This is, this is helpful. Um, I, I, I know we have, there's a couple more things that were on there that I wanted to talk about. One was NCVH, um, which I'm guessing is a meeting, but I'd like you to unpack that. But, but first, <laughs> um, the consult, we'll, we'll end on that because that's a, that's a, a good note, right? I mean, that's people meeting yeah. to talk about this disease, right? That kind of thing. Um, but, but there was another thing that you wrote on here and it was consolidation in healthcare and the rise of office-based labs or OBLs and the impact right. on care and cost. Can you unpack that a little bit? What, what, what are those and, and why should 
anyone who's listened to this podcast so far care about that? Yeah, well, first of all, healthcare, much to my horror, because I was originally trained as an economist, mm-hmm. has become a series of large monopolies. Hospitals, insurance companies are, are monopolies. Mm-hmm. And the hospitals have then acquired physicians. So that by now, like within the cardiology field, something like 70% or more are um, quote, quote, owned by the hospital. I mean, they're, they're hospital employees. And, and, and numerous studies have been done that have shown that, well, first of all, just in economics, mon- monopolies are not good. Um, if there's no competition, you end up with higher prices, lower quality of care, differentials in care, et cetera, et cetera, or, you know, goods and services. Um, and the same, the, the studies have shown in healthcare, the same outcomes. Um, so in response to that, and also, you know, other factors going on, the interventional physicians have um, started their own, they have to be independent. They can't be, they can't be working for the hospital, but the ones that have remained independent have, have started their own labs. They're basically cath labs where they can perform these procedures. And one of the things that enabled that, well, first of all, we have screwy reimbursements um, in, in this, well, in all of healthcare. Economically, they don't make sense. Um, so Medicare, I can't, it's maybe like 10 years ago, I don't remember the exact time frame, but Medicare suddenly woke up to the fact that um, uh, procedures were moving to the outpatient from the inpatient, you know, the hospital outpatient. And so, and they, they started seeing disparities um, in, in costs. And so they, they changed the reimbursement. This was actually good. So that doctors uh, could be reimbursed for, for providing these procedures in the office space lab. So we had a reimbursement change, that's what I'm trying to say. And that, that also helped it. That plus the dissatisfaction with dealing with the hospital administrators. Also office space labs <clears throat> are considered to be much more patient friendly, um, uh, much easier to you know, get in and out of, patients like them better, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's the whole OBL thing. Okay. And there, of course the hospitals see this as a huge competition. So um, they don't want reimbursements to become any more favorable for the OBLs because that would take away their business. Um, Got it. Yeah, economics. Um, yeah. So, so <laughs> that, I mean, that's, all, that's a whole like two hour discussion. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, I've, I've asked a number of uh, physicians who have been on the podcast that are now founders of startups and oh. I always ask them about the healthcare system. And uh, I'm not sure I've had anyone give a rave review of the current dynamics of the U.S. healthcare system. Um, and, and, and a lot of that, you know, we, we, ask, we, we hear a lot of terms, too, about value-based care um, and, and, and these kind of things, but um, I've yet to see much change, right? Uh, hopefully, but... Well, exactly. And, and one of the problems is that, okay, Med- Medicare, let's just take PAD as, as an example. Medicare and Medicaid, I, our tax dollars, government money, pays for 84% of the, the, the bill, okay? So they pretty much drive the reimbursement. You know, the, the, and the uh, what do you call them? The insurance companies, the United Healthcare's and the Blues and all those other guys, they sort of, they pretty much, they follow along, you know, not 100%, but Medicare. So Medi- Medicare is, is the big dog that sets the reimbursement rates. Well, they don't seem to understand economics in terms of, you know, if you pay people to do something or you pay them not to do something, then people will either do it or not do it. And, and the reimbursement has just been, like I said, it's screwy. It doesn't, um, and so then they tinker with it and sometimes they get it right and sometimes they don't. So 
but we do have, you know, well, let me not get into the whole healthcare argument. <laughs> we can be here for the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's let's end Looks on. Like a, I got into the age. Yeah. Let's end on a positive note. What is NCVH? Uh, when is it? Um, why should people attend? What's the 2022 program look like? What's your involvement with it? Um, you know, what what is it? Yeah. Okay. Well. NCVH stands for New Cardiovascular Horizons. Um, they have been holding this meeting in New Orleans for over 20 years. And Dr. Craig Walker, who's, who's a friend of mine, and I consider a mentor, started this, this uh, meeting. And basically, it's a multidisciplinary meeting that's focused on PAD and CLI. And they've also add, added Venus to it. Um, it is, uh, starts the day after Memorial Day, so May 31st to June 3rd, yeah, the 4th is Saturday, um, and it starts off with the business of cardiovascular medicine, of which I'm co-chair with Dr. Walker, uh, and I'll come back to that, and a fellows course. And it's very important that the fellows understand this disease, know about it, and know how to, you know, do the interventional procedures. Um, in, the, in, you know, there's over 1,500 attendees. There's live cases, 20 live cases from around the world, primarily the U.S. and Europe. And we have six different tracks. I mentioned the fellows and the, cardi the business session, uh, family practice, there's a podiatry course, um, healthcare professionals forum, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we also have, so I probably shouldn't keep saying we, but <laughs> I, I'm very, I feel very close. I mean, it's like a family. Yeah. Um, uh, there, there's also, uh, Dr. Walker started the first CLI uh, critical limb ischemia summit. And, and what's unique about the meeting is that this is one of only a couple of meetings that's actually focused, dedicated to this disease in all it, well, it, and it's dedicated to all the aspects of the disease. So, you know, the, the program we have, um, uh, everything from medical therapy and why it's important, i.e. risk factor modification therapies um, to interventional therapies. Uh, it's, it's, it's more focused on and less invasive endovascular therapies. There's not too much on bypass. Um, so, I mean, these are the, inter the interventional guys that, that do the, um, procedures on the PAD and CLI patients. Um, in terms of the business session, uh, we do, there's a lot of, um, of course, a lot of uh, lectures on costs and economics and, and, you know, how big the problem is. And there's also some really interesting lectures on new technologies like telemedicine and wearable healthcare. And this year there's gonna be a live robotics exhibition, um, which sounds really fun. Um, cool. and then there, you know, there, there's also, um, discussion about office-based labs and what their role is and, and reimbursements and OBLs, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, that's, that's sort of a quick overview. Basically, uh, when, when we first started the, the, the company, you know, we tried HA, we tried TCT, we tried, you know, Sir, you know, there a whole we tried a bunch of meetings, but but what I found was that most of them were too, you know, they were focused on stuff like AAA and heart disease and whatever, and that, all that's important, but that's not what I'm interested in. Sure. And so. It, for us, it was a must-attend meeting, and then about I don't know ten or so years ago, um, I was asked to speak. 
which was really fun and gratifying. And so I, you know, I've been speaking at this meeting. Now there, there's some other, there's a couple other meetings that are also focused on um, uh, PAD CLI. One is the AMP meeting, um, which is in August. So people should really, if if they're interested in this area and um, in this topic of PAD CLI, they should really attend this meeting. Okay. And All right. there's always lots of new technologies featured and, you know, controversial discussions, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. So plus New Orleans is not necessarily a terrible place to visit, you know. <laughs> right, right. So so there's it's not, there's it's not too hard. Right, right. So there's NCVH. You re, you mentioned another one called AMP in August. AMP. Yeah. AMP. And then is there is there any others that hey, if you're in this space you should be at? Oh wait, oh um, there's Viva. Okay. Uh which is in Las Vegas in like late October, November. And those are pretty much it. If you want to, if you want to go to a meeting that's just dedicated to this area. Okay, cool. All right. Um, Mary, hang on for uh, one minute here. I'll stop the recording. We'll chat offline real quick, but, but I'll include a link to your website. Um, in in the show notes so if people are listening in they can scroll up or down an inch and, and reach out to you um and uh i'll also include a link to the conference and cvh and uh other than that thanks so much for doing this great well thank you it was fun thank you for listening to the podcast if you enjoyed this podcast please subscribe and leave a review if you need anything from the podcast you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.